Welcome to Engineering Stories, a podcast presented and produced by Silver Fox and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. This week's guest is Sam Bement. Sam is a Technical and Innovation Manager at Railway Industry Association and has a doctorate in Railway Systems Engineering. He tells us about his experience and shares how he transitioned from aeronautical to railway systems engineering. So without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome to Engineering Stories. I'm Alex, the head of R&D at Silver Fox. I have, as most of you probably know by now, a degree in electronic and electrical engineering from the University of Bath. Alongside me today is my co-host, Nicoletta. Hello, Alex. Yes, my name is Nicoletta. I am a second year student on electrical and electronic engineering at the University of Greenwich. Brilliant. Thank you, Nicoletta. And our special guest today is Sam Bement. Hello. Uh, so I'm Dr. Sam Bement. Um, I only get the doctor out for special occasions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I have a first degree in uh, aeronautical engineering. And then my doctorate is in railway systems engineering. So changed industry straight away. Okay. And um, Sam, where do you work? I work for the Railway Industry Association. Um, so we're actually the oldest trade association in the world. Um, we are based in central London and we represent all of the UK railway supply chain. So anybody who makes something, sells something related to the railway into network rail or um, overseas exports. Um, we represent their interests to government, to technical organisations, etc, etc. We're a membership organisation. So, um, we represent our members only, but we do a lot of work on behalf of the whole industry as well. Brilliant. So your role specifically, tell us a bit more about what you um, do. More about what I do. Um, so, my, so my role, I'm a technical and innovation manager. So my role actually covers quite a wide spectrum. Um, but if I, if I had to put it into a few sentences, it would be having a finger in all the different pies of the rail industry and knowing what's going on technically across many, many different topics. And that can be infrastructure, um, rolling stock, the interfaces between them, uh, electrification, civil engineering, to know a little bit of everything. And on behalf of our members, um, I organise technical events. Um, I represent our members at technical committees, for instance, British standards committees and some international committees. Um, I give technical signposting and assistance to members who have uh, queries and also on the innovation side I'm always trying to uh, push for more, better, faster um, innovation in the railway. So I'm always helping our members and some people aren't our members yet um, to get their innovations onto the railway to make it a better place. Sounds like a busy job. Yeah, It's a very busy job, yes. Well, there are not well, enough hours in the day. Well thank you for your hour for today. <laughs> Um, that's fine that's fine my pleasure so you said you've changed from an engineering degree to railways what made you change i did my my first love is aircraft and flying and such like um and i went off to uni and did an aeronautical engineering degree okay. here at loughborough i graduated in 2009 which was just at the start of the sort of global aviation crash, if you will. So whilst I wanted to be an aeronautical engineer and design and build aeroplanes for a living, um, not only were there no jobs in aeronautical engineering, there were also thousands of existing aeronautical engineers being made redundant and dumped onto the labour market. So the chances of me getting a job that 
I wanted to do, if you will, were swim to none at that point in time. Um, so I had a look what was out there, what was hiring, what was a nice stable industry that might pay me a decent wage for the rest of my life. Um, and a few friends of mine recommended rail. So I looked into it and I applied and got a job on the Network Rail Graduate Engineering Program. Well, that's a journey. <clears throat> you have Network it? Rail does on two helicopters. So, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a little bit of a link there, I guess. But. Did you enjoy your degree? Well, um, I enjoyed aspects of my degree. So I come from a long line of engineers in my family. My granddad was an engineer, my dad was an engineer. And my perception of engineering was building things with your hand and hands, making, making things work, if you will. And I think that traditional uh, skilled aspect of engineering that I saw growing up, I grew up in a Lancashire mill town, um, and people just fixed, mended, made do, and that was what I saw as engineering. When I went to uni, um, the engineering that I did at uni was essentially a lot of, it was applied maths, yeah. which, you know, I think engineering some, somehow missold and perhaps um, if I wanted to get my hands dirty doing a, an apprenticeship or similar would have been the route. I don't regret doing the degree, um, but it wasn't what I expected when I went to uni. So lots of applied maths, um, not so much actually getting to hit things with a hammer. We did get to build some stuff, incidentally, and as the course went on, we got to build more and more stuff, um, aluminium structures for aircraft, that sort of thing, and then test them in presses, uh, make sure they performed as modelled. Um, but the majority of the degree that was sit behind a desk and do maths wasn't mm. my cup of tea. I'd rather be getting out there building things. Okay, well, interesting. Well, I'll, I'll, I'm going to jump to one of the last questions we tend to ask people, but <laughs> yeah. given that that answer, I'm going to ask yeah. it. Um, Given the availability now of degree apprenticeships, where you get your degree, but you still go and do an apprenticeship, you learn a trade, you learn a skill, do you think that would have been the right route for you if if it was available? Possibly. So I think I benefited because I had the background of being hands-on anyway, because that's how I was brought up and I learned things um, essentially from my dad and granddad that... I think a lot of the people I showed up on the course with didn't have. Mm. Um, so I benefited from that practical experience. I think if I had my time again, something like you've suggested would be, I'd, I'd probably do more research um, as to what was a bit more hands-on and a degree, degree apprenticeship is probably a good mix, yes. Well, that, that, that answers that question. I get, like I said, it's, <clears throat> it's one we tend to say for the end of the podcast, but, but that, that seemed like the right, the right time to ask it. Do you feel like aeronautical engineering has changed as a degree in nowadays comparing to what you've you've had or what you've studied? Or do you think you stay the same with behind a desk applied maths? So I'm not I'm not exposed enough to the aeronautical industry after having done my degree to make a fair comment, oh. I don't think. But what I will say is that I do still come I'm still in contact with people who I did that degree with, obviously. Um my first few years of say my first six seven years of experience in rail is that i was basically uh, given a lot of wonderful experience taken all over the network shown the real living breathing railway and it is a living breathing railway um and i've been given some great experiences to go and design my own kit i've been given money to do that i've been given the opportunities to do research and try and make things better the friends i spoke to who 
went into aeronautical engineering um, and it might be a symptom of the fact that it was 2009 and you know there was uh, huge redundancies but actually I can give one example a good friend of mine um, went to work for a company who manufactured landing gear um, and he spent two or three years um, trying to lightweight a certain component in the landing gear so he was sat behind a desk doing a lot of modeling doing a lot of design and then they redesigned the aircraft um, to increase its maximum takeoff weight and uh, the landing gear that had been on the drawing board for three years the first three years of his career out of uni um, you know working on this thing pride and joy um, and it just got thrown in the trash one day because we didn't need that set of landing gear anymore because the plane got heavier sort of thing and that that hasn't really happened to me I haven't had that experience of being trapped behind a desk working on something that you know I'm not saying that there aren't those jobs in rail it's just not the jobs that I've got Mm. sorry it's not just not the jobs that I have held the posts that I've held Um, so I think my personal experience in fact no let me change that I think I've actively sought out jobs that aren't like that because of my personality I don't think I'm somebody who could sit behind a desk and turn the handle on a design and make it 3% better if you will Um, I want to go for the big the big fish yeah that's interesting because when I was looking for my placement I was determined to to not go to a place where we had placement talks from people and they went to nuclear power stations and pressed buttons mm. and that was their placement. And I was determined to not do that. What happens the, if you press the wrong button? Well, well exactly. You, one, you one that's the, the, the pressure is huge. Yeah. And also, there was nothing There was nothing to show for it at the end. The yeah. power, plant, power plant still ran. That's good. I mean, do, I've, I've perhaps come across a bit negative there, and I don't want to be—I don't want that to be the um, the takeaway because it takes all sorts, and a lot of people are really good at iterating designs and want to do that, and that is absolutely fine. That just doesn't suit my personality. And if everybody was like me, the world wouldn't turn because nobody would be sat in the design office making those designs, doing that CAD, etc., yeah. etc. Yeah, well, I was just just saying that I, I was determined to not to have something to show, so I managed to get a placement at Nissan um, as a design engineer and worked on the new new Micra as it was then it's a a middle-aged Micra now Um, (laughs) but uh, did uh, did anything you designed on it make it to the production model uh, yeah yeah Yeah. so so every time you see a Micra on the road you can be like that left headlight there no it was the it was the wiring harnesses actually but yeah yeah Um, but it was still it was still really cool because I could go back to, to university and go see a yeah. car and I saw two my first week back at university which was really cool and I was yeah. like yeah I know exactly where that's been and that's a good feeling yeah yeah but I can see how pit that wouldn't necessarily suit that iterative design oh how can we make this better wouldn't necessarily suit some people um, yeah. but the same way it didn't I didn't think it would suit me to go and go and press buttons um in a power station but again that would suit suit other people and some yeah. people would be quite happy with it um, I think we're probably doing a disservice to the people who push buttons in nuclear power stations I, th- I, 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 I think probably, they do a great job probably a 5,000 page manual that you need to understand to push yeah, yeah. the right button at the right time So, but but I I'm think there's there for when it goes wrong not when it goes right it's presumably like flying a plane <laughs> that's, I've, not, I've not heard that stay, saying in a long time but yeah I think that that suits it quite well but I think I think there's, you know, we're all different, and everyone has a a different 
idea of what's a good job and what they want to do and i think that's just i think that's why engineering's so great and so important is because there's so many different different roles and i think that's what this podcast is we we set out to highlight is how how wide a scope engineering is and just because you don't want to push buttons or you don't want to iterate design there's probably something for you in there i think there's probably a big piece here on uh equality diversity inclusion and belonging because there are so many different roles in so many different places that suit so many different personalities um that i think this it, it kind of suits the the spread of personalities in society in the same way if that makes sense mm. yeah. you mentioned flying flying is your passion <laughs> yes so do you fly uh i fly and i also skydive yes wow. Not at the same time, I hope. (laughs) Uh, Not at the same time, no. Uh, So I started skydiving when I was in university. I came to Loughborough University to do my undergrad. Um, And Loughborough is a very sporty uni. Um, And I went to the sports fair on the first day. And everybody was like six foot six. I'm not six foot six. You can't tell that on a podcast. Nearer five foot six. Um, But I was walking around the sports fair and everybody's there signing up for their, you know... um, Pro rugby squad, um, swimmers with feet the size of like dolphins flippers yeah, and things rowers, like that. And I'm yeah. there, never really done any serious sport. And I was like, well, I'm at Britain, if not the world's best sporting uni. should probably sign up for something. Um, the flying club was a bit out of reach financially. Um, but the skydiving club had a much lower barrier to entry. And I signed up for skydiving and gliding on that first day. Um, because I just got my student loan, so I could just, you know, bleed money <laughs> yeah. for a few weeks anyway. Um, so I signed up for skydiving and gliding. The skydiving course was one week before the gliding course, and I went along and had such a good time that I never actually showed up for my gliding course. I just lost my deposit and I went skydiving again. So, oh. um, so that was my passion that kind of motivated me to get a decent job, earn decent money, so that I could burn it all on jet fuel, repeatedly going to thirteen thousand feet over and over again. Um, and then more recently, about three, four years ago, um, I finally got to a position in life where I could sink some money on learning to fly as well. well. So I spend, try and spend as much of my leisure time in the sky in some form or another as I can. How how far? Have you, how big a plane can you fly? Uh, I can't remember the regulations. I'm a baby pilot, so I can fly a single-engine piston, not in a cloud, up to three tons with four passengers or something like that. Brilliant. That's pretty cool. Oh, not in the dark yet, either. That's a a separate badge. There's a badge for everything. (laughs) Good. A 25-metre swimming badge to be able to do that. You fly? (laughs) No, I've had one flying lesson ever. Okay. Um, Did you smash it? I did. I took off. Yeah, Uh, you smashed it on your first lesson. No, no, not quite. Although my, okay. the the bloke who took me up was, I think, um, a complete and utter, ins- like maniac. Um, okay. We went up. Was in Jersey. I mean, that's um, probably a perception thing, but yeah. Oh no, he. he we we he got was up. Super cool. Yeah, yeah. We went up to I don't know how high. Probably a thousand feet. Yeah. I can't remember now. And mm-hmm. then he decided he'd take over controls and just dive. Yeah. I've never been so scared in my <laughs> life. Um. This bloke who who turned to me when uh, when uh, when we started, he got in the plane. He was like, "Do you want to take off? You shouldn't really take off. I shouldn't let you take off, but do you want to?" And I was like, "Yeah, okay." He was like, "Okay, here you go." So did it, and I was like, "Okay, right, flying, flying, flying." No, down we go. And my poor dad was in the back. Yeah. Uh, and he said he's never felt more sick in his life. <laughs> uh, 
but it was good fun it's something that if i ever had the had the money and the time to do i'd love to do mm-hmm. um but it's that's, uh, the, that's the pendulum you've just mentioned that's the pendulum i've had through my career money and time yeah i think money that's and time swinging backwards and forwards when you what is it when you're young you've got time and no money when you're middle-aged you've got a little bit of both and by the time you retire you're running out of time yeah but you've got loads of money that's the plan anyway um loads of money no i keep spending it on uh on flying lessons fuel for it yeah, yeah. silver fox proudly supports engineers with all their cable wire and pipe labeling requirements the fox in a box thermal printer has the ability to print a whole range of thermal labels with one software one printer and one ribbon saving loads of time for the engineers out there in the field for more information contact sales at silverfox.co.uk or call on plus four four 01707 Um Yes, based on your LinkedIn, you said that you've worked um, into the entertainment industry, if I'm not wrong? <laughs> yes. I was quite curious about that because it's it's a contrast. Would you like to tell us a bit yeah, more about so that? Was, absolutely, yeah. So um, I've just said like, I was I always, all the way through uni and everything, I've always had a job to enable me to have the money to be able to do the things I want to do. Um, so I was based in Loughborough, obviously, for my undergraduate degree. Um, needed a job. There was a lot of bar work. I did a little bit of bar work. Um, but then I got offered a job. Oh, sorry. I applied for and got um, passed the interview at a job working for a nightclub company called Nexum Leisure. So Nexum, uh, they owned about 15 nightclubs. They didn't own a nightclub in Loughborough, but they the headquarters was in Loughborough, just around the corner from my house, so I could just ride my bike around. And I started off there just as a kind of a junior web person. So I would put the adverts on the websites for um, upcoming acts that might be on in the nightclubs, that sort of thing. Um, But it was quite, I was kind of given power early on, if you will. Hmm. So it was quite good fun working in the nightclub industry. Um, So quite early on, I recognised that some of the websites perhaps weren't as good as they could have been. So I taught myself to code in PHP, I think I did it in and made some like automatic content updating things so like as soon as an event passed it would just swap the image and put the image for the next um, event up sounds like a simple thing but i would never done anything like that before I was just kind of working it out as I go and the company were kind of approving because it had done work for them that was above and beyond what they thought um, I was there for about three years the highlight I think was by the end of the um, God, I can't even remember what year maybe 2000 and Eight, 2009 um, we put in the first ever mobile ticketing system for our net like, we didn't invent the system we were just the first ones to roll it out so you could back in the days of MMS's do you rem- remember those yeah um, it would send you an MMS with a little picture in the MMS which was your ticket and a code and you could come up to the door of the club um, and you would scan in your ticket and it would let you in the club and nobody had ever done that before and I would kind of project manage the IT side of the rollout really good fun for the launch tour we got the Venga boys um, so oh, yeah. it was from it, it, it's, a, it's a crazy where life has you end up so during the day I was going sitting in these uni classrooms and doing maths to learn how planes flew and then in the evenings, I was getting in my car, driving up to the airport, collecting the Venga boys, and then driving them to uh, to the night, the next nightclub for the next bit of their tour to see if this mobile ticketing system was working. 
And incidentally, for the for the bottom line of the club, of course, uh, you go out to a nightclub, you go out with like 30 quid in your pocket, or it was probably like £2.50 back in those days, but you go out with 30 quid in your pocket and you continue to spend your money at the bar until there is no longer anything in your pocket. So you spend your £30 and then you've run out of money. This is in the days way before contactless, so you're going in with cash, right? You spend your £30 and when you've run out of money, you go home and that's it. So the nightclub, in terms of their profitability, gets £30 out of you. If you sell somebody a ticket to get in on the door, it comes out of that £30. So you still go out with your £30, you spend £10 on the door and you spend £20 at the bar. So the takings for the nightclub don't go up any if you're charging on the door, typically. If you sell somebody a ticket in advance, it goes on their account. They don't see the money come out. So all of a sudden they pay a tenner to get in your nightclub on their phone. They still go out with a 30 quid in your pocket and you're making 33% more money on the same number of people coming through the door which was pretty clever. I didn't think of that, somebody else did, but watching the takings go up by rolling this thing out was just, was yeah, that was a really, really fun episode of my life, put it that way. There you go, kids. That's <laughs> why nightclubs charge you for entry. <laughs> we actually as well, um, so there was a, uh, I don't know about a bug, there was a bit of a problem with the ticketing, so you could actually just share the ticket with your mate once you'd bought it. Oh, well. Now, that was good because it's all about footfall in nightclubs because then three more people turn up always 30 quid in the pocket and they all buy beer from you as well so yeah so i guess they're not too fast pretty good i guess they don't make much money from the ticketing themselves do they <laughs> like it's probably but i mean mms's were expensive to send as well back in the day so i bet yeah they were like not, 10p not a if ticket. you're buying 50 million of them no was, maybe not uh... but i do remember <laughs> you've got 10 10 a month or something yeah and uh and that was to receive and to send. Yeah. I think yeah. that was probably my first exposure to, because up until that point, I'd been in jobs where I was an operative rather than somebody who had to worry about money and the bottom line and such like. Mm. And I think getting exposure to the business side of things early on, and I, I'm still thankful to Nexum for giving me the opportunities that they did. Um, having that exposure early on, before I'd even left uni, because I was still, I was doing that sort of maybe 30 hours a week while I was at, doing my degree um and i don't it, that taught me a lot of things that a degree in engineering didn't put it mm. that way is that so an actual operational business where the money matters and whether you have a job or not in three weeks depends upon whether you bring the money in the door mm. was that was that tough i mean we, we, we've spoken quite a lot about work-life balance on this podcast mm-hmm. um, but i guess that's work work balance was that tough doing a degree Not. and spending your evenings yes absolutely um, and it was tough on my girlfriend at the time as well um, it was more tough doing my PhD because I did my PhD in my spare time around my day job so mm. um, it took me six years I think um, to get through the process um, and that was so at least with the nightclub job it was such a it was such a contrast to sit there during the day, do the uni work, and then in the evening you're going doing this completely different thing, which is actually quite exciting. But my PhD was part-time based around the work I was doing in my day job. So mm. I'd do my eight, nine hours during the day of the day job and then have to find the motivation to go home in the evening, open the laptop back up and spend another three, four hours writing it up into a thesis or into a paper for publication, yeah. that sort of thing. So I think... For me, and it's it, an old friend of mine actually said said to me once many moons ago um, that he reckoned that having three 
three things on the go is optimum. Three different things that you're into that you can split your time between and then you don't lose the motivation for each, if you will. Um, so with the PhD being just the same as work, essentially, mm. um, that wasn't the case. But with the nightclub work, it, yeah, it was so different. Tiring, incredibly tiring, but I slept well. <laughs> yeah. I think maybe because mm. it had such a contrast between the subjects, if you want, and the topics, it made you mm. not lose the interest yeah. either. Exactly that, yeah. 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 I'm about to start mm. training for a marathon. Uh, well, a half marathon first, mm. then a marathon. And then, yeah, and I'm also starting some, some evening courses as well. Wow. Um, some CPD stuff. So that's going to be, yeah, I think that's going to be really tough to, to balance and, and find. Yeah. There, there is a, I think everybody has a different threshold for work-life balance. And I don't think I'm a workaholic. I think I'm a doaholic, <laughs> which is different. Um, it's not my term. Somebody else said this term to me the other day, but a doaholic. So a doaholic isn't somebody who necessarily wants to work all the time, but you struggle to just sit and do nothing. If that mm. makes sense. Yeah. So I'm not very good at just sitting in front of the TV for an evening and watching EastEnders. I just can't do that. I'd rather be out and about. I'd rather see my mates. I'd rather read a book or something. Um, so I need to be doing rather than not doing. And I think at different points in my life, I've either applied myself, my doaholicism to working, or I've applied it to um, uh, DIY stuff. Like I'm in my second house now. That's all done up because I've done it because I that's you know I wanted to be doing something rather than watching TV um, and at different times like yeah when I was doing my PhD that was my I'd want to do my PhD in the evening because that was my my thing or I'd want to go and work for the nightclub company mm. um, so I think doing rather than working but yes there are only a certain number of hours in the week so you need to say keep some of them to one side to not do yeah good um, everybody's threshold for the not doing is different you, mine's just like very low <laughs> are you one of those people that will start a project at 11pm yes yeah 100%. no hesitation does my head in my, go- my girlfriend's the same <laughs> my girlfriend will go right it's 11 so I reckon we should clean the entire flat or uh, it's 11pm so I reckon we should change the doors in the kitchen <laughs> on the kitchen cabinets yeah. um, and I, I'm a morning so she, you're person. You're saying she's an evening person. Yeah, I'm. I'm not. I'm yeah. an evening. I'm a morning person. Yeah. So you start projects at seven a.m., which I find more annoying. Yeah. 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 So I'm still asleep. Yeah. <laughs> so you you did your PhD, but you took a yep. bit of a bit of a career swing, I think is fair to say. Um, but also, as we've as we've mentioned, but also you only did your bachelor's. Your first yes, degree correct. was only a yeah. bachelor's, which isn't yes, it was isn't normal. It's not normal, no. Um, so I, um, it's a long and complex story, which I'll save you. But I did a bachelor's due to the student finance arrangements uh, messing me out, and I, I couldn't um, afford to carry on for another year, if you will. Okay. Um, so I left with bachelor's. You get onto the network rail grad scheme with a bachelor's. Um, so even if I'd have found the money at that point, I was like, well, I've got a job lined up that's decent and a place on a grad scheme. So what's the point doing another year? Mm-hmm. uni so I kind of decided against borrowing or anything like that um, did three years at Network Rail I think two I can't remember exactly um, and then applied for a job and um, was offered a job back at Loughborough University working as a railway researcher um, in a completely different department to my undergrad so that was in the electrical 
engineering rather than the aeronautical engineering, which obviously we're in buildings next door to each other, but ne nobody ever speaks to each other in a university and buildings next door to each other, so a different crowd of people. Um, and they offered me, normally that job would require a PhD to even get through the door, but because it was railway research and it was quite a specific topic and it was stuff that I'd actually been working on almost exactly when I was at Network Rail, um, they let me in on uh, an experience card rather than a qualification card. Mm. So I ended up, it was a, a very lucky break and I'm still in touch with my old um, boss who hired me. I'm very grateful, but he basically hired me into a, PhD, a role that normally requires a PhD with only a bachelor's just because of my prior experience. Um, and the deal was when I signed up, he was like, um, you know, you can get a PhD off the back of publishing all of your research. So, so long as you, you know, do a good job. If you stay here long enough, you will have a PhD because part of your job as a researcher is to publish in journals, etc., etc. Um, so yes, so I signed up for the job, and within six months, he had me signed up for a part-time PhD alongside it. And that's Pretty how good. I ended up on a. That's how I ended up with a PhD with a but. But I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a requirement. It's not, but it's it's, to, it's rare for someone to not rare, do a master's. Yeah. I think I think there's a real. Um, I think we, well, I'm getting on my high horse now, I think we as society have come to see university education and going and just bettering yourself. Um, the opinion has swung round that you must go to uni to get a job rather than just go to uni to get to study something that you're interested in. Mm. You know, like if, you're, if you live, if I'm lucky, I'll live to, well, 60, who knows, like 75, I can't remember what my life expectancy is. I've probably knocked a few years off that by doing a phd i'll tell you that now. <laughs> um but yeah if i make it to my life expectancy and i've done three years at a uni studying something that really interests me really personally deeply interests me is that a waste or is that a wonderful thing you know even if i then go out and get a job in something completely different and i would make the argument that more people need to go, go and just do a year like if you're interested in looking out the window if you're interested in flowers or you're interested in military history or something like that there's probably not a huge number of jobs in it but if it really interests you yeah just go and do it for a year you're not going to be what? a worse person because of it it might open your eyes your, your time your time in engineering has allowed you to work all over the world i believe yes it has yes I've been very any any favorites oh yes australia um so I managed to get over to Australia uh, once with work um, for about two weeks um, and I went to attend the World Congress on Rail Research which uh, if I give a little plug that's being held in Birmingham this year oh that, that's, that's disappointing well it's not because a lot of people want to travel to the UK you know that, that will draw in a huge it's disappointing for you because you can get there on the train presumably in you know a couple of hours but yeah. if you happen to live in Japan South America and you wanted to come and see you know the the cradle of the industrial revolution. Then that's a fantastic yeah, that's trip for you, that's and they're going to put on a good show. And the ball ring. And um, plus, Birmingham's a good night out, so I'm sure they'll yeah. have fun. Uh, but yes, my favourite was uh, Australia, Sydney. Um, the Aussies put on a fantastic event for us. We had dinner in the harbour on a cruise ship. We had a launch party at um, I can't remember the name of the zoo, but we got a boat across the harbour, and I was there at one point with an iguana in one hand and a beer in the other. Um, talking to the president of Australian Railway Association, so I can't remember who, but yeah, it was uh, it was a wow. rather rather That's crazy time. I met a colleague again in this role that was actually on the same um, work trip, and we were reminiscing about it, and still to this day, not 
understanding how somebody somewhere had managed to get that amount of wine through expenses. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a good trip. Well. So there are opportunities for fun in engineering, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, I managed to get to Singapore. So there's a very specific um, organisation, the, the Institution of Railway Signalling Engineers, which is a very uh, specific technology area, I guess, and therefore not a huge number of people working in it, and they're a very close-knit, very friendly community because of it. Mm. And they organise several actual annual technical tours, and they do a conference called Aspect, which is like a, um, a technical R&D type conference. I was in Singapore a few years ago, and again, they put on a fantastic um, programme of events uh, leading to drinkies in a Chinese at the top of the bank of something or other building on the... Wow. I couldn't even count the floors. There were many floors, but yeah, the view was fantastic. The food was fantastic. The people were fantastic. All good. And then every now and again, um, I'm, I'm making this sound very romantic i guess but the reality of most railway work travel is that you travel to a different country to sit in a gray shed on an industrial estate and look at some kit sit in a black box and go yes it looks like a piece of kit can we do this with the piece of kit and it's like yes you can okay i'm going home now um so it's not it's not always that romantic yeah. and i've lost count of the number of uh travel lodges and mm. meals for one it's like the fight club scene where it's a single serving on the aircraft you know yeah I was like, oh yes, I'm travelling for work again, so I have no one, no one to eat with. Single serving. Yeah. <clears throat> I had that the other day. Actually, I was down in Swindon, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, dinner in the hotel for one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And did you spend the whole time staring at your mobile phone next to your meal, or did you try and make eye contact across the room with another stranger who's also there on a business trip or a meal for one? I don't know. There was a there was actually a group next to me. I was trying to work out what they did. They were on a business trip as well. Um, yeah, I was trying to listen to That's their conversation, but I couldn't. I couldn't work out quite work out uh, who what who they worked for. But I think it might yeah. have been someone like EY or and I kept like a um, professional I, services firm. I started because um, I've been to America for work quite a few times, and I started trying to if I saw somebody else who was obviously there on work and they were having a solo meal. It's you have to be brave to do it, but you never know. They could be a chief exec, they could be your next boss, they could be someone very important, very powerful, and they're just there as well for work, and they're just sat having a meal for one, and they're a bit lonely, and they're fed up of single servings. So you just say, "Hey, are you here working? Ah, oh, cool. Can I join you? Just have a meal." And by the end of it, you've swapped business cards with um, somebody you wouldn't have met otherwise, and you've had some company for your meal, etc. Uh, it's a pretty ballsy move, but um, what's the worst they can do? They can say, no, I want to sit here on my own and stare at my phone. Mm. Then you're like, okay, have a nice yeah. day, bye. Yeah, have a nice day. I'm going to sit over here and stare at my phone, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll do you that get too. really lucky. They might, they might be a CEO and they might pick up the tab for all the drinks then in the evening. So, you, know, you, know. <laughs> you said you uh, like DIY? Like you've had a couple of yes. DIY <laughs> projects of your own and built a second house. Yeah. How... So yeah, so I I haven't built a second house, so I I did a so, again being a doerholic, um, I was lucky enough, and I realised that the younger younger people listening on the call will not be this lucky, but I was lucky enough to get in, and because I'd worked through the nightclub job through uni, um, and before uni, um, I'd managed to save up enough to get my first house when I it was two thousand and nine. It was just just before everything crashed. 
when they were still dishing out mortgages at fantastic rates for like 95% or whatever it was mm. and I just about just caught that wave which was incredibly lucky because if I'd have been six months later I wouldn't have caught that wave um, but I basically bought a house and gradually did it up through my first few years of working at Network Rail um, sold it a few years well, made all my mistakes on the first house that's the way it works you make your mistakes on the first one learning curve um, so by the time I got my second one um, I've made all the mistakes and I've yeah um, I've not built it but it, it, it's I've done a loft conversion on it um, I've smashed out all the downstairs to turn it into a big open plan area I've built a workshop out the back that's I can't remember it was about 80 square metres something like that oh. out of brick that was my lockdown hobby um, again do a holic so yeah, it's quite. Um, I stuff like this is ninety percent luck. As I say, if I'd have been six months later and being like, maybe I've got enough for a house now, there is no way I'd be on the property ladder. And I almost, I see some of my friends and colleagues who are in that situation. It makes me very sad that they're working very hard and paying huge rents and that sort of thing. And it was just luck. Let's let's talk about your PhD. What was it in? So my PhD was in. Um, as a high-level subject, railway systems engineering, um, but the actual topic was making uh, track switches, points, more reliable. Um, so it was a fundamental rethink of how we switch trains from one track to another, essentially. Um, it's done the same way, all around, I mean, there's minor differences, but it's done the same way all around the world. Um, you typically have two rails that slide from side to side, um, powered by an electric motor or a hydraulic ram, and then when the rails get to where they go in, they're locked in place. It's a single motor, it's a single lock. Um, so if anything fails, oh, sorry, there's a bit of electric kit as well that watches where the rails are and tells the signaling that it's safe for the train to pass. Um, but if any part of that fails, then you have a points failure. And bear in mind that failure, could be, the points could be fine, it might just be your detection system that's failed. Um, and a points failure is one of the things that can bring railway networks to their knees with delays because that points mm. failure, the points are in the tip, can be in the middle of nowhere, it can take you hours to get there with a fault team, and it might be a very minor fault, it might be something very simple, um, but because they're safety critical, um, and the way they're monitored and detected and locked, you need to be absolutely sure that they're safe for the train to pass. So my PhD basically looked at um, re-engineering them, so rather than achieving your safety critical level of performance through a single machine single lock um, I basically said well we could have several machines doing the same thing how reliable would that make them how safe would they be how many more trains could you get through etc etc um, it's not as simple as that because of course if you lock your rails in position if you have a second machine it can't unlock the rails because the first one's locked it so it's not just a case of stick two point machines on a set of mm. points um, so I came up with a particular mechanical arrangement that ended up being patented um, of a way to get over that problem to enable you to have several set, several point machines working on the same points. The advantage of that is also that um, from a maintenance point of view, um, at the moment we go out and do regular checks in the UK, so the, the points will get looked at by someone who goes out on the ballast to have a look at them to make sure that they're functional and safe and that happens you'd be surprised how regularly that happens whereas if you have several point machines you can basically ignore one till it fails and then send somebody out to replace it basically so there's all sorts of maintenance advantages as well 
got to my PhD. So is that so, uh, is that two hundred pages? You can go and read it if you wish. <laughs> is that is that in action now? It's been patented, but is it is it? Uh, being it's been used? patented. It was patented all around the world. Um, the honest answer is that in the short term, politics killed it. So it's out there in a sense that Network Rail are now working on development of it, rather than it being a technology developed by somebody in a shed or somebody at Loughborough University. Um, and mm. it's currently in the Into Track Two program, I think, because the uh, preferred future switch design etc and i believe um I don't, I don't know exactly what stage it's got to i've kind of stopped following it um, when i was at the uni the final project i worked on related to it is that we built a full scale one and ran some trains over it and it performed as intended which was nice mm. um, and that was at a test track just down the road from here um it was frustrating because it was developed to a level where it could have kind of been taken on by a manufacturer developed it needed a lot of production engineering for example um the bit that i'm not very good at as you figured from earlier on in the call a few design iterations that sort of thing but i made the first one and that worked or rather sorry we made the first one and it worked um so it was at the point where it could have been taken on by a manufacturer unfortunately due to the funding arrangements of that demonstrator the it was ultimately the government that paid for it through dft and it filtered down through rssb um, there were some requirements placed on us to give anybody in the UK who wanted to build one a license to build it for free, which was fine, but nobody wanted to be the first person to adopt that because the first person would get all of the pain of getting it approved, all of the development cost. Mm. The second person can just copy it. So all of the manufacturers, all the manufacturers of points equipment basically said, that's a great idea, we would love to build the second one. And getting the first one <laughs> built was yeah nobody wanted to do that what do oh, you know yeah, so like... that was kind of where it got stuck um, there are still people interested in commercialisation and I believe discussions are ongoing but obviously I can't reveal stuff about that that's the definition of the first million's your hardest so I'm going to make my second yeah. one first yeah. <laughs> um, wow so how, do, how does it work you, you've you've designed well, you, you and I guess the team at Loughborough have designed this yeah uh this this switching system do, do you own it does the government own it do... uh it's that's a good question um in terms of it it i believe i guess would be the intellectual property the around pattern, the design yeah. which is the patent and the design rights to it in terms of ownership formally loughborough university owns it um, but when you, it's, it's actually a fortunate part of working for a university because I know if you work for a lot of companies and you come up with something and patent it, the company on it, not you, mm. company on all the rights to commercial exploitation. Generally, if you work for a university and you come up with something clever, um, they will do you a deal where you get a cut of any future royalties or revenue for that invention. Mm. So whilst they own the IP, um, we have a contract with myself and the other guys who worked on it um, whereby if commercialized uh, we will get a fraction of yeah um, the money that comes in um, now that doesn't count for the UK because of course we did the deal to get the funding to develop it yeah whereby um, you get to give it to free you can have it for free you can yeah. have it for free because you've already paid through it through your development money but should it ever be sold overseas in patented territories then that would um, result in um, royalties to the university and then royalties via them to me so to answer your question, formerly the university on the IP, um, but it's quite amenable, the arrangement, if mm. you will. So is, is it relatively transferable between railway gauges? Yes, yes it is. It's almost universal, yeah. 
<laughs> so there's plenty of plenty of scope to get it. Uh, hundreds of thousands of units. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Potentially. Uh, what, what what are you working on now then? What, what what cool project? That's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool project. But what are you working on now? As you've already <laughs> as you've so, already alluded to, you're so doing there. So the contrast between so a PhD is all about knowing one little bit of knowledge to an absolute extreme until you are the world expert in that thing. Um, and in my PhD, I was the world expert in um, fault tolerant track switching. Uh, for a short time, because there's now people working on that as a whole topic, and they mm. know now advanced, so they probably know more than I am, but I'm sure some of them do. Um, whereas my job now is to know a little bit about everything. So it's like the opposite. It's the complete contrast to um, doing a PhD. So I've gone from knowing everything about one thing to a little bit about everything. Um, so a lot of what I do now for the Railway Industry Association is to do with innovation and innovation projects. And actually... The sort of things I'm, well, the way I can help is by linking up all of the people that are working on cool things, if you will, mm. and saying, hey, what if you worked with him or her and that technology kind of combined with this one and then I start sticking together um, teams to build things, that sort of thing. So it's a very different approach. It's kind of a top-down approach with existing organisations rather than, uh, you know, sitting in a lab and literally soldering wires together. Um, so I've got interesting things that I can, I'm not really allowed to talk about, I'm afraid, but we're looking at interesting things across electrification. Um, so mm. electrification is the quickest, easiest way to decarb transport. Nothing comes close to an electrified railway in terms of moving people and stuff between two places in a decarbed way. Um, if you have an electrified railway with green power, you you know that's that's perfect. It's near to as per, near to perfect as you're going to get. The problem with electrification is it's a bit expensive um, for the initial uh, capex cost. Uh, so looking at technologies to bring down that capex cost suddenly opens up more areas of the network that can get that can be electrified. Mm. Um, what else am I working on? Oh yeah, um, so I'm working on a uh, document basically highlighting all of the advantages of. Um, the investment in rail innovation has brought either to society or to exports, um, bringing money into the country. For example, we we forget what the world was like before the railway, if you will. Like until the railway, it was horses, carts, and barges. Mm. You know, um, the railway came along. All of a sudden, you can move millions of people within a day to opposite ends of the country. Millions of tons of coal, ballast, you name it, um, and innovation's a bit of a modern buzzword, I think. Um, but the railway was innovative by its very creation and has been ev innovating ever since. And that's why we don't have steam anymore. We've gone to electric traction. You know, that's why we've got continuously welded rail and trains that run at 225 miles an hour, etc., etc. Um, and I'm trying to make sure that a lot of the future innovation that's going to happen, that will happen, in the innovation will happen. And I would like to ensure that ha that happens onshore in the UK so that it's our products that we're exporting rather than let it happen overseas so that we're paying to import mm. um, things that we require in future. So again, that's a very high-level piece of work, but one that needs doing, um, lest we fall into a trap where we're dependent. Mm. And is, is electrification, obviously, it's, it's the way we're going. It's, it's, it's good for better for the environment. Um, is it... 
is it more cost effective than traditional powering methods uh, so so by traditional i'm going to take you mean diesel yes we'll go diesel <laughs> good, old, diesel, good old diesel diesel or steam yeah. we could we diesel can or steam. um so electrification has a higher capital cost because obviously you've got to string wires up over your railway mm-hmm. but then a lower operational cost and how high or low your operational cost is depends upon how um frequently about the amount of traffic using the railway so you reach a break-even point where it will never pay to electrify some lines, some branch lines, lines perhaps in northern Scotland, that sort of thing, where the OPEX savings will never pay back your CAPEX. Mm-hmm. That's purely in financial terms, not um, looking at the carbon aspect, but in financial terms, that's where you're at. Um, so RIA, the Railway Industry Association, actually produced a document called the Electrification Cost Challenge that's got a lot of this detail in, but if uh, the executive summary is that it pays... We can do it cheaper if we get a rolling program of electrification rather than stop-start projects. And if we get that rolling program, it pays to electrify, I think it's about 80% of the remaining unelectrified track. Don't quote me on the number. It's something like that, document available online. Um, and for the remaining lines, um, it then become, you then if you do want to decarbonise, you need an alternative power source. And the two biggest contenders for the alternative power at the moment are hydrogen and battery. Um Okay. Now, obviously, both have their advantages, both have their drawbacks. I don't think it will be one technology that wins. It's not, a, you know, we're going to pick this one. I think it will be different um, different solutions for different locations. And there's a lot of our members at the moment working on some really clever stuff around that and kind of even without, in some cases, formal government support, uh, whether financially or otherwise, they're ploughing ahead and saying, well, we know there's going to be a market for this particular technology, so we're ploughing R&D into it. And I really respect that. How how come? Obviously, I know the reason the tube is electrified. That the yeah. the it's on the, the ground. Tube had steam it? in the past. It has had, but but yeah, now yeah, it's yeah. electrified on the ground because obviously there's no space for overhead lines. Yes. But how come we've adopted <coughs> that on the rest of the rail, the rest of the railway, and not gone for the on the the Dif- the, the third rail? Yeah, different different technologies at different times that were were available at different points of history, basically. So if you go down to the southeast, uh, most of the southeast is electrified with DC third rail. Um, the, because the third rail is low down and near things, you can't have it as high a voltage uh, as you would with overheads, which yeah, okay. are up in the air and miles away from everything, so mm-hmm. the lecky doesn't jump off them onto whatever it can get hold of. Um, so the DC third rail is at a nominal 750 volts uh, for the electrical engineers on the call, uh, the lower the voltage, the higher the current to be able mm-hmm. to transmit the same amount of power. Um, so the DC third rail, the amount, the number of amps you have to pump through that rail when you've got several trains in section. You know that you can see the rails steaming in winter because they're, they're getting warm and there's, it's quite lossy, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, that said, it's been in place for years. It works perfectly well for the southeast. Um, there's a few safety concerns, which I think will mean it's not going to be rolled out more but there are projects of what we call dc infill so there's little bits if you just did a mile here or a mile there you could run different services in different places or you know there's advantages to doing that so we we are rolling out a little bit more of that Uh, the overhead system that we use which is twenty five thousand volts typically um, which means you need we can have have much thinner conductors because you have uh, much less current flowing Mm. Um, and they're also better for higher speed, I understand, not an expert, but um, if you want to go above 
um, sort of 125, 150 miles an hour. Um, all of the systems in the world that go that fast use overhead catenary. Okay. Um, personal opinion is that overheads are a bit ugly, but yeah, they get that's the what job I was done. thinking. They, and also, they get know, the job done. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're a bit uglier. And they're, they're they are a bit lips. uglier. I think, some again, some of our members are working on um, aesthetic, aesthetic masts, and they look lovely. So maybe in a few years' time, rather than seeing the big, you know, head spans, yeah. you'll see nice carbon fibre or... Some futuristic vision. I, I, I vaguely remember them running a competition a few years ago. I mean, it's probably... Yes. I say a few years ago, yes. probably 10 years ago now, to, to redesign electricity pylons. Yeah. Um, yeah. And some of those designs were quite interesting. But I don't. I haven't seen any, so I'm guessing it went nowhere. I don't know. <laughs> What advice would you give to young Sam or Samantha listening to the podcast, listening and thinking, yeah, I want to do what Sam does? And what age is young Sam or Samantha? Probably looking to go to university. So let's say, let's say 15, 16. Okay. Uh, so my advice would be that even if you're not sure about a technical career or a career in engineering or something related, um, if you have the skills or the talents to do a STEM degree, um, it will serve you well through many walks of life. So, you know, even if you're like, oh God, I'm not sure if I want to be an engineer or do this or that, even having that in your, um, having that on your CV will never serve you badly. I know people who are accountants, I know people who are CEOs, um, I know people who fly around the world selling things who have engineering degrees. And doing an engineering degree doesn't pigeonhole you to sitting in front of a computer and doing CAD for the rest of your life or maths or something like that. But it's a wonderful thing to um, have as a first step in your qualifications. And never, never, ever turn down a free drink. And never turn down a free drink. Because that's how all the best networking events start. And and that that leaves us just to say thank you very much, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Um, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> It's not often people listen to me for an hour straight and don't touch me. So. <laughs> Too far away. My arms don't stretch that far. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been really good talking to you. So thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engineering Stories podcast. We hope it's given you some insight into another area of engineering. If you're still here at this point, we must be doing something right. So stay tuned for the next guest. And in the meantime, share this episode with your friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe.